Thank you, Molly. Out of gratitude for, and, and just to honor God for giving us his written word, would you just stand while I read Psalm 22 to you? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we need your presence, your power, your anointing this morning. This would not just be words, but that you would come and minister to our hearts. Speak to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, this next question is going to be very telling. How many of us memorized Psalm 23 when we were children? Oh, I'm impressed. Yeah. Where'd it go? It was like half the whole place last service, so... Um, I, it was not as much, but I'm impressed nonetheless. Um, I think I was either in second or third grade when I memorized it, um, and I was totally confused for years. Uh, here's how my second grade brain heard it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I kept asking myself, why would I not want him? I had misunderstood Psalm 23 for years. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Did you know that many of the world's largest and fastest growing churches are the ones that promise people that God will give them what they want? Health and wealth. That's another misunderstanding of Psalm 23. Health and wealth in this life. We need to understand that if the Lord is our shepherd. He promises you much, much more than health and wealth in this life. If Jesus is your shepherd, then right now, things are far better than you think they are. If Jesus is your shepherd, then one day in heaven, things will be far better than you can imagine. See, if you know what God knows, you would see that as your shepherd, he has been shepherding you, leading you into the very best opportunities for you in particular to flourish. He doesn't cause evil, but when evil tries to destroy you, and it does, he shepherds you through even the most difficult times and uses each painful and disappointing situation to offer you opportunities. To grow in the way you love Him and the way you love other people. To, to join Him serving others. To trust Him and see His supernatural power at work. If we knew what God knows, then it would be like what Justin said last week about his young daughter, Evie. That when she has kind of a deep realization about something, she goes, 
Oh, okay. When we get to heaven, we're going to be saying that a lot. Because we've been promised by God that we will fully understand even as we have been fully understood. But right now, we don't know what God knows. We don't see the positive impact that our choices are having, not only in the spiritual realm that most of us cannot perceive, but we don't see the positive choices that are going to keep going on down through the future, impacting hundreds, thousands, millions of people. So we usually don't see how things are actually much better right now than we think they are. Now, we were talking this week, some of us, and um, I think this is a particularly difficult season for a lot of people. It just, uh, it just seems that way. Talking to some of you, there are people who have either lost their jobs or because of federal te- freezes or th- their jobs in jeopardy. There are, are people who are just uh, struggling, hanging on by their fingernails as a single parent and trying to survive. Some of you have been struggling with just unrelenting physical pain for a long time. Some are even facing a terminal illness. Some are lonely. Some have children or grandchildren that are just really struggling. And so as I've been talking with some of you, it just seems like there's a lot right now. It's just kind of... Have you ever gone down to the beach and watched the waves come in when they're big and smooth? And they don't really come in the way that we would think that they should. What we would think is they should just kind of come in, evenly spaced, about the same size. But actually what happens is if you get down there and there aren't, and, and there, it's a good wave day, maybe it'd be five or so minutes, so it's maybe just little waves. And then you get four to six big waves. And then five or so minutes of little waves. And then another set of big waves. They come in sets. What happens is when there's a lot of wind or a storm hundreds of miles away, the waves initially are kind of regular. But it sets up an interference pattern, so by the time it reaches us, it's constructive and destructive wave interference that makes it into this pattern of sets. I actually, when I was an engineering student, I got to go to a lab where there was this great big long wave tank, and they generated waves at the same frequency at one end, and by the time they got to our end, they came in sets. Exactly the thing that happened in the lab, and it's exactly the same thing that happens in life. The big difficulties in our lives don't often come evenly spaced. I have one difficulty a year. They come in sets much of the time. There's a big wave at Carmel River Beach. It's actually bigger than it looks on the screen. And sometimes waves uh, seem to be much more than we can handle. Sometimes the storms of life seem to be much more than we can handle. Because they are. You're not, you're not meant to handle them on your own. They're not more than your shepherd can handle them. See, he wants to be our shepherd. And he wants to make sure that even the waves that often are the enemy of our soul wants to use to crush us, the storms, the challenges, the ones that are too difficult for us, will end up helping us to flourish. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Do you remember that from Romans 8 when we did that a while back? God wastes nothing. 
Your shepherd is much more powerful than the devil, much more powerful than your enemies, than, your, than sickness, than any disadvantage you, you feel you have in life. Your shepherd is leading you in ways that you're not likely to understand now. But later you will understand and you will say, Oh, okay. Would you open up your phone or a Bible to Psalm 23? It's on page 458. Just encourage you to keep that open. This is probably the most famous psalm of all 150 of them. I misunderstood it for years. We're going to kind of walk through the main ideas. We won't be able to cover everything. And I'll leave you with a few encouraging concepts. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Hebrew phrase here means I shall not lack or have need of something, or be without something. Now, you might think, well, uh, I'm lacking health. Or maybe you lack a spouse. Or maybe you're just kind of scraping by financially. What does God mean when He says that you will lack nothing? Now, three weeks ago, God told us in Psalm 1 that we will prosper in all that we do if we take the light in His law and meditate on it. Now, in Jesus' day, as we talked about then, most of the religious leaders had, had misunderstood. And they had looked at that very superficially and they had come to the conclusion that if I will externally keep God's law, then I will have health and wealth. And so they automatically assumed, for example, with the man born blind, that he, somebody must have sinned greatly. And Jesus said, nope, that was not it at all. Some, in Psalm 23, when we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It doesn't mean that you will always get what you ask for for Christmas. It doesn't mean that you will never lack something that you desire or have to do without something. What it means is that the Lord will shepherd you. He will guide you and make sure that you have all of the resources you need to flourish as His sheep now. Not to flourish without Him as your shepherd, but to flourish as His sheep now. And that later, you will be with Him forever. In heaven. Now, let me say that again. You currently have all the resources you need to flourish with Him as your shepherd and you as His sheep, and later to be with Him forever in heaven. But flourishing now looks different than we think it should. Do you know what you need to flourish right now? Let, let me illustrate. Um, a few weeks ago, Janice and I got to take care of two of our adorable, genius grandchildren for a couple of nights. One day they'll be playing in the Super Bowl. Um, and we were given strict instructions regarding use of the television. Uh, my daughter-in-law, both our daughter-in-laws are amazing, and, and this one has it down to a science. If they watch one 30-minute cartoon show and then stop and play with toys or color or go for a walk. They are fine. But if they watch two 30-minute shows back-to-back, they become very grumpy. It torpedoes sometimes their whole day. You see, they always want to watch another show, but toddlers don't know what makes them flourish, do they? And we are a lot like them, aren't we? 
We do not know what we need now to flourish deeply and long term. If God gave us everything that we want, we would be more comfortable. We would enjoy it. We might be proud and think that, well, I've got all this health and wealth because I've made such great choices. And we also might not be prepared to help other people who don't know Jesus yet when they're going through something similar to what we've been through. So God doesn't give us everything that we want. That would not actually be good for us. Instead, He makes sure that you have exactly what you need to flourish deeply, long-term, not superficially, so that you will love God more and more, love people more and more, become more like Jesus. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, this is a picture of a bunch of the sheep over at Mission Ranch at the mouth of the valley. Those, I don't know if those look like dots back there. They look like sheep to me. Um, and they're lying in a green pasture. And they're just lying there. They're not worried about whether or not the, where their next meal is coming from. They can see it. Okay? They know there's plenty. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. See, when David wrote Psalm 23, and when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, many people worried about having enough to eat. Periodically, there would be droughts and thousands of people, and the crops would fail, and thousands of people would starve to death. Now, we've fortunately been getting a lot of rain here in California lately, and we're hoping that our long drought is over. But how many thousands of people unwillingly starve to death in California during this drought? None. In fact, in my entire life, I have never, to the best of my knowledge, no one has died in America because there was not enough food. But just because we no longer worry about starving, does that mean we don't worry? When Jesus said, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Do you think that Jesus was only talking about food? Was he saying, don't worry about food, but you should worry about your retirement, or your health, or your children, or your career? No, of course not. Jesus was talking about all anxiety. He was using food and clothing because those were powerful worries going on in people's lives. But Paul expands it. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, now catch this next part. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your shepherd wants you to trust him, not just with food and clothing. He wants you to turn over all your concerns, all your burdens, and experience a peace that nobody around you is going to know how you're at peace. Often, even you will not understand. You see, when you're being hit by wave after wave of adversity in the storms of life, if you will pray and thank God for all he has done, both the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and also just the, the rational remembrance of all that God has done for you should fill you with supernatural peace. And other people will look at your dire circumstances and say, how, how are you at peace? 
then they want Jesus too. I have a confession to make. I, um, I've not been a very good example of this lately. The last ten months or so have been one of the most difficult seasons of my life with a set of about six different ways. And I've prayed about them each day, but I, I've not spent enough time really remembering all that God has already done and really asking for His supernatural peace. So I, I confess that I haven't really emoted peace. Uh, probably some of you picked up on that. I, and, and I can't tell you all about it. I mean, some of the things are not my story to tell. And I do have a group of pastors I meet with, and they kind of know everything. And I have a small group here that they know a lot of stuff. And, um, but I would ask you to pray for me regularly, especially that God's supernatural peace that passes all understanding would guard my heart and mind. That I would emote peace no matter what's going on. But what about you? Do you worry? If you struggle with worry at all, I have an assignment for you. We'll put it on screen. That you would memorize one anti-anxiety passage. Maybe you already, one of the people raised your hand, you already memorized Psalm 23. You can just, you know, reclaim that, review it. The end of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about food and clothing. It's just beautiful language. Philippians uh, 4 that we just read and was on screen a moment ago. Just to memorize it, to recite it whenever you're feeling a little bit of worry. Remind yourself of what Jesus has already done. Thank Him. And thank Him for what He's still going to do and then ask for supernatural peace. And then come and tell me how that's going. I'm going to be doing the same thing. Hopefully I can be better at that. Verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. Kenneth Bailey died last year. He was a very famous um, teacher of seminary in the Middle East, both in Beirut and Jerusalem. He also taught in a bunch of seminaries here. Considered kind of an expert on Middle East culture. And he apparently learned a whole bunch of stuff about sheep from shepherds. And one of the things that he said is that sheep don't like to drink from fast-moving water. They like to drink from calm water. And so David has painted this picture of our shepherd leading us to still waters instilling a peaceful situation for us. He wants us to have peace. Verse 4, He restores my soul. Now, Dallas Willard, um, he passed away a few years ago, he talked more about the soul than anyone I have known. Dallas um, was the most Christ-like man from what I could tell that I, I've ever, ever known. He was a pastor, a genius, philosophy professor at USC, authored books that have shaped a generation of pastors. I highly recommend that you read his books, especially the two we'll put on screen, The Spirit of the Disciplines and Renovation of the Heart. But during my doctoral studies, I had the privilege of sitting in the same room with Dallas Willard for two solid weeks. And there were 24 pastors in the room with him. And he spent all day long teaching us and interacting with us. It was wonderful. It was unlike any class I'd ever been in because the professor was unlike any that I'd ever had. Now, Dallas would say that your soul is you. It's, it's your body. It's your mind. It's your emotion. It's your will. It's your character. It's, it's all of you together. And he taught that our choices impact our soul. Who we are, who we're becoming. If, if our choice is to race around from thing to thing and to take our kids and race around from thing to thing, 
then that will cause our soul, he said, to kind of, kind of retreat, to kind of disengage. Dow said that most people are not really in touch with their souls. He taught us that the soul can be somewhat skittish or shy, but it can be reluctant to reveal to you how you are really doing until you would just get alone and be at peace. Dallas was a big proponent of spending time alone and in peace and just kind of gently watching for your soul to sort of show up and let you know how you're really doing deep down in your soul. Your shepherd, Jesus, would like to lead you beside still waters, calm waters where you can be alone with your shepherd and where your soul can become apparent to you and you'll see how you really are. He wants to have your soul restored. How is your soul? Do you know? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There is a way that leads to destruction. There is a way that leads to life. Paths of righteousness is the way that leads to life. It is thinking and saying and doing the right thing. Now, I'm emphasizing this a lot in this series because our culture has kind of misunderstood. Since all of us sin, all of us fall short, none of us is good enough to earn a spot in heaven. Jesus has saved us as a free gift. So why would you choose to think, say, and do what is right? Why does it matter? Well, it doesn't matter to earn your salvation. No one is good enough. And it's certainly not so you can be proud and look down on others. As a matter of fact, the more you do and think and say what is right, the more you'll see you're not, and the less you'll look down on other people. We all struggle with something. So why do the right thing then? When we do the right thing, you know, the right thing, it's not arbitrary. It flows out of God's character. When you, when you do the right thing, it helps you understand and appreciate God. You worship better. When you do the right thing, you'll hurt others less and you will love them better. When we do the right thing, it pleases God. If we love Him, we want to please Him. When we do the right thing, we become like Jesus more rapidly. But there is a fifth reason, perhaps the most important reason, and it's mentioned here in Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. In kind of church language, we would say for His glory. So that for all eternity, people will be impressed with God for the ways that He transformed you and helped you to love people much better than you used to. So that people will see how loving you are and they'll be interested in Jesus. And so that people will not see you behaving or talking in a way that convinces them that you don't really walk the talk. You don't know Jesus. And they reject Jesus. See, Jesus said His sheep know His voice and follow Him. If Jesus is your shepherd, then you follow where He leads. You submit to Him. You obey Him. Not perfectly, but basically. And when you fail, and we all do, you repent and you ask for forgiveness and you receive 
forgiveness and this restoration. And you do all of this for His name's sake. In a bygone era, people were very, very motivated to do their duty and to not dishonor God. We need more of that. Not because it earns us something, but because we love God and want to love Him more and want to become like Jesus. Verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a total inversion of things in the ancient world. The master would sit at table and the servants would serve. But in the kingdom of God, our shepherd, our king, our Lord, prepares the table for us. He is the servant king, the servant God that dies for his people. He prepares a table. It's going to be an amazing feast. He anoints us with oil, both a sign of welcoming us into his house and of filling us with his spirit. And our king serves us in abundance. Our cup overflows. And best of all, we get to be with him forever. God does not promise you health and wealth in this life. That would be far too shallow, far too quickly gone, far too superficial. It cannot satisfy you. You can't take it with you and you are going to die. The flourishing that our shepherd has for us goes far deeper. And it lasts forever. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You see, he is also the lamb who was slain. He's both shepherd and lamb at the same time. And as the lamb, he was slaughtered so that you would not have to be. And we're going to remember that in communion in a few moments. And as shepherd, he leads you now along pathways where you get to love people well, even your enemies. Just as he loved his enemies and rescued them, you may get to die for your enemies. And give them an opportunity to flourish. One evening as the disciples were ferrying Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, which is a big lake, kind of like Lake Tahoe, and uh, a huge windstorm came down and just... It was so awful that the boat was filling with water. And these seasoned fishermen, they were convinced they were going to die. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Now, from the disciples' point of view, this was perhaps the worst situation they had ever been in. They're terrified. In my opinion, the storm was the devil trying to destroy God's plan, much like when... Herod sent the soldiers to try and kill the baby Jesus. It's a foolish attempt on the devil's part. But Jesus knew that even in this situation, he would use it powerfully to train his disciples. The disciples woke Jesus up. He called out, Peace! Be still! And immediately, they would be calmed. And the disciples would remember this faith lesson and be used by God to heal and cast out demons And in turn, that would be recorded for us faithfully and it would help millions and today ripple down through history 
and perhaps help billions to love God and to flourish. Would you let Jesus calm your storm today? Would you follow Him to still waters? Would you let Him put you in touch with your soul so that you could really hear how you're, how you're really doing? Jesus said, ask and you will receive. If you've never actually asked Him to be your shepherd, ask. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are our good shepherd. You laid down your life for us. You are also the Lamb of God. And we are so grateful. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this room now. And that you would speak to us, that we would know if if you want us to talk with someone else and, and be prayed for, that we would sense what's going on in our souls, that we would not walk out of here without an understanding of how we really are deep in our souls. Lord, it seems that many of us need a deep work today. That we need for you to come and minister to us. To give us supernatural peace. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would, as we remember the Lamb of God, our Shepherd, who died on a cross, that you would fill us with gratitude, fill us with a deeper understanding, fill us with confidence that in spite of how it looks, things are far better than we think they are. That you have given us all we need to flourish. And now we ask that you would supernaturally minister to our hearts through this bread and this juice as we remember your redemption of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.